Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our international reporter, Zofia Zviglinska. Uh, Zofia was in London for London Fashion Week last week, and she is going to be in Paris next week for Paris Fashion Week. But this week, we're talking all about Milan Fashion Week, which neither of us went to, but that's okay. We we covered it from afar. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about Milan this week, and next week, Zofia and I will talk about Paris, and then that will wrap up our month-long fashion month coverage on Week in Review. We're, we're also going to be covering um, all of these weeks on Glossy with stories and newsletters and stuff. So you can check us out there. But yes, this episode is going to be all about Milan Fashion Week. I've just got a bunch of loose thoughts on this that I just have collected here, and we're just going to dive in. The first one is I was talking to somebody from uh, Lensing Group, which is a textile company. They make these sustainable materials so they were showing off some of their sustainable materials at Milan's uh, Ethical and Sustainable Showroom, um, which is a thing they do every season. I think this is the third one. We were talking about how at Fashion Week, all the eyes of the media and buyers and customers are all on the brands. But one other thing is that the brands are also kind of watching each other and seeing what the others are doing and flexing a little bit and taking notes on the competition and things like that. And and I was thinking about that because um, at at Milan Fashion Week this season, uh, Mathieu Blasi, who's the new creative director of Bottega Veneta, showed off, I think, his third collection with Bottega. And I thought it was very similar to um, Daniel Lee's first collection with Burberry, which just showed in London last week. Um, so Daniel Lee used to be the designer for Bottega. He left, joined Burberry. Mathieu Blasi took over um, at Bottega Veneta. Interesting to see some shared DNA there. Um Maybe it's just the fact that the Bottega collection had a lot of tweed and trench coats and stuff, but it felt kind of British to me with a touch of modern Italian kind of style, which is very similar to what Daniel Lee has been doing at Burberry. Anyway, I've been talking for a long time. Sophia, did you get to check out the Bottega collection and what did you think? Yeah, definitely. The the kind of experimentations that he's been having with, with leather over the couple of last seasons has been really interesting. Um, so I do think there's been some similarity there between you know, Daniel Lee's kind of vision for the brand. And maybe it's also more of, you know, an aesthetic shift even since then, because it's such a like key kind of period for Bottega that he hasn't shifted it too far away from, you know, what it is now. And, you know, there's still that kind of cult aspect with the bags. Um, Blazy's kind of launched a sardine bag, which was meant to be like this new go-to accessory from Bottega after Daniel Lee's, um, you know, absolute reign um, over the accessory section with his time um, at Bottega. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Uh, another thing that that brings up for me is like, we, last week, you and I talked about how there's a lack of big British luxury fashion brands kind of internationally other than Burberry. But something I was noticing at Milan this week is that there's no lack of great British designers like Daniel Lee. There's a lot of the the Italian brands and the other brands showing at Milan Fashion Week had British designers. I talked to James Long from Iceberg, who's been there, I think, for a year or two. Um, I talked to the Juicy Sisters, who, who run AGL, and they are Italian, but they were collaborating with some English designers and said that they wanted to bring some English style to their Italian kind of, you know, collections. It it feels like the British influence is very, you know, felt all over the place. There's so much talent coming out of the UK, but still just like not a lot of brands. So anyway, I know we talked about this last week, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting wrinkle that there's all these, you know, I, I met a lot of, met and talked to a lot of 
very talented British people more uh, through Milan than through London Fashion Week. Did you notice that as well? Yeah, definitely. I think that it's about that kind of aesthetic that is very classic and it appeals quite a lot to Italian brands and designers. I think it's something that, you know, might be an easier segue for Italian brands looking to modernize, you know, for their customer. Um, maybe that, you know, British aesthetic is something that they want to tap into to bring in, you know, a younger consumer, but also to appeal to, you know, an older consumer, their more kind of classic um, range. So that reminds me, I wanted to ask you, you wrote a great briefing for Glossy about um, diversity at Milan Fashion Week and the the presence of not white, non-white designers, um, you know, throughout the Italian fashion, like high fashion, um, you know, infrastructure. Um, tell us more about what you found out because I thought your briefing was so good. And if you're listening, you should, even after you listen to this episode, you should go look up Zofia's briefing because it was great. I think that, you know, Milan has had a long-standing issue with diversity. Um, it's something that kind of reoccurrent appears at every single season that they've had. Um, the Italian um, camera da moda, I think that's what it's called, um, or the you know National Italian Fashion Federation. Um, it's basically called on diversity, sustainability, and something else for this season. Um, however, one of the kind of key areas that it's been investing in um, is something called We Are Made in Italy. Um, and this has been something that, you know, they've been taken part of for the last three seasons. And ahead of this season's, and it's been quite kind of sudden, um, they cut ties with it. Um, and it's something that was founded by, you know, two well, sorry, three um, people who are very kind of influential within the Italian fashion industry and who represent, you know, BIPOC designers and are part of the kind of BIPOC group themselves. So you've got Stella Jean, who's the only kind of member of the Camera de la Moda. Um, you've got Edgar Buchanan, who is the first um, designer to helm um what's it called um Bottega and you have Michelle Nagomo who's head of Afro Fashion Week and they've created this incredible kind of organization that is supposed to helm designers into the Italian kind of fashion scene and it's something that you know they've worked tirelessly for um over the last couple of seasons and to see that that inclusion isn't there you know this season when that is such an important topic um just kind of shows that you know it always seems to be kind of one step forward, two steps back. Um, and that has also been the case. So I talked to Edward um, about, you know, what that means for him, um, what they're doing with We Are Made in Italy and looking for investment um, and kind of what that means for the wider fashion industry in Italy um, and how, you know, there should be a wider inclusion from the international media um, and buyers to kind of focus on BIPOC designers in Italy instead of kind of helming the same dynamics that seem to be appearing, you know, season after season. Yeah, definitely. There there was a um a fact in your briefing that the national the Italian National Fashion Chamber only has one BIPOC member out of two hundred, um, which is not a good ratio. And yeah, like I don't want to be too broad about it, but it does feel of of the four big fashion weeks and the countries that host them. Uh, New York Fashion Week, London, Milan, and Paris. All four countries obviously have still lots of problems with racism and um, you know a lack of diversity all you know across the board. It does feel like Milan and Italian fashion kind of cares the least about these things, or at least from my perspective, does the least about them. Um, and you could argue that some of the other 
organizations in the other countries talk about it a lot, but still kind of don't back it up. And I definitely think that's a fair argument. But um, yeah, it does feel like at in Milan and, and Italy in general, it's a little bit less of a priority than some of these other places. I don't know why that is. Um, and hoping to not offend too many Italian people uh, by saying this, but I, I I don't know. I just get that vibe sometimes. I don't know if I could back that up with like data, but it does feel, I mean, the one in 200 is, is data and that is not good data. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's other kind of stats that back this up is that, you know, in Italy, for example, if you're born there, but you come from somewhere else, you don't automatically get citizenship. So that road to kind of being accepted as an Italian designer um, is quite hard. And I think a lot harder than it is in other countries where that kind of route to citizenship may be a little bit easier. Um, and, you know, Edward's been in the industry for like over 20, 25 years now. Um, you know, he's seen it go through so many things. And he says that that progress has been very kind of limited. It hasn't really grown in much. So I think that through the briefing, what I was trying to focus on is that, you know, there's still a very big BIPOC presence. Um, and that what these kind of industry leaders are trying to do now is that they're trying to kind of build out something on their own rather than relying on these kind of national federations to kind of help them. Um, you know, take it to the next stage and possibly also help with, um, you know, more kind of industry partners. I think they talked about Meta um, and possibly kind of other more commercial partners who might be able to help them get that funding to take it to that next level. Yeah. And I wonder if we'll see kind of like we were saying when there's a lot of British designers in Italy because, you know, there's fewer op opportunities at big luxury houses in the UK. I wonder if we'll see some of those Italian BIPOC designers get scooped up by brands and houses and, you know, big conglomerates outside of Italy just because they're they're not being given the same opportunities. Um, but I mean, that that and that's not as helpful, though, with those national organizations that are meant to um, support designers from that country, like the Council of Fashion Designers of America um, or, you know, the equivalents uh, in, in the UK and, and France. So maybe it's not a perfect replacement, but I, I do think it might be nice if some of those brands in other countries scooped up those designers and gave them the opportunities that they're not getting at home. Okay, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, so I got this, I, the last couple of seasons and years of covering Fashion Week, I feel like there's been this constant hand-wringing um, about, is this really worth it? Are these shows worth it because they're expensive? And uh, and do they are they still relevant? And then also all, there's been this trending towards uh, doing shows outside of the calendar. So before or after Fashion Week or not doing it in the main kind of city. So, you know, doing it in Detroit instead of New York or doing it in, you know, Nice instead of Paris or something like that. There's been this like kind of fragmenting. Kind of felt this season, definitely at Milan and, and I think in New York and London too, that it, I didn't really get that sense. It was kind of like if you were going to show, you were going to show at the Fashion Week. Um, I mean, Milan Fashion Week had Bottega and Prada and Gucci and like all the big Italian ones were there. I feel like New York was much more exciting and a lot of big brands were there. Um, did you get that sense that, as well that the fragmentation is kind of lessening and it's more coalescing back onto these central places and central times? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know whether it's just a case of it's easier when everything's together, when everyone's in one place. But I, I think the other thing is mainly just budget. Um, all of these shows kind of outside of, you know, typical fashion week schedules are typically quite expensive. Um, you tend to have to fly people out. Um, you know, some of the locations can be quite remote. Um, again, building up that infrastructure to make sure that you have all of the support surrounding a fashion show. Like all of that kind of takes time and it's not necessarily something that might be as easy to organize elsewhere um and i think that there is a centrality to it that you know does help um if it's just in the kind of regular fashion week schedule and i think especially in milan which can kind of call on its you know heritage um kind of history um it brings in all of these italian brands it's almost a kind of national banding together when you talk about all of these brands being you know on the same schedule in one place it makes sense for them I think especially this season just to address everyone they can um, and to also kind of take account of all of the um, KOLs and the TikTok people and all of the other kind of social media influencers who they will be benefiting from um, you know through coverage. Yeah and and I think there's there's a line to be drawn here to to connect you know a more central fashion week with also just brands cutting costs and being more, you know, conscious of how much they're spending on stuff in general. It's, yeah, if you could do, uh, you know, your own show separate from the calendar, often a castle and, you know, somewhere like Gucci did, uh, you know, a couple of seasons ago, and you'd probably have a lot more, you know, you'd have more of the focus. You're not like trying to stand out, but also you're not benefiting from, uh, you know, a collective event where everyone's already there and everyone's already looking at, you know, there, there's something uh, a little bit, yeah, you know, saving both cost and effort and just showing at New York Fashion Week or London Fashion Week where everyone's there already. They're all going to shows already. You don't have to work quite as hard to get people to, you know, be there. You do have to work a little harder to stand out, but I mean, people are there, they're primed to see these shows. So yeah, I, I, I would bet that that's maybe part of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that something that I've seen this season from Milan as well is that there's less of these kind of shows that focus on performance. Um, like it doesn't seem like there's quite as much kind of interest in doing these absolutely massive, um, you know, presentations that have some kind of like an interesting element to them. Um, and especially in Milan, it kind of felt like it was more kind of classic paired back. Um, all of the kind of integral show elements were not quite as showy as they have been in previous past, as you mentioned with, with Gucci, for example. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Is there any other uh, things that you noticed? I, I blew through all my thoughts and observations. Um, what else did you see? Anything that stood out to you? Um, like I said, you the, your briefing on diversity in the Italian National Fashion Chamber was great. Um, but what else stood out to you? Did you talk to anybody interesting? Yeah, I think the other thing is just to focus on the products themselves. Um, something that I just keep kind of harping on about since London is the kind of prevalence of leather um, for autumn, winter 23 and kind of what that will mean for, you know, general supply chains in fashion, whether that's kind of high fashion or kind of the trickle down effect down to kind of main store brands. You know, leather has a huge um, environmental impact for some brands. I think Gani said that it was 
their most impactful aspect of their business. Um, so it just goes to show, you know, that this is something that brands should be focusing on. And yet, you know, majority, I would say, of looks um, this season and even from Milan, some way constituted leather. So how that's going to impact, you know, all of the sustainability conversations, I don't know. But I'm not feeling good about it. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, that focus on innovation um, around leather and kind of making sure that those things are not full of petrochemicals is something that, you know, brands really need to be conscious of instead of kind of just focusing on the trend. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's hard, though, because when you look at some of the biggest luxury fashion brands <clears throat> like Louis Vuitton, the vast majority of their money comes from leather goods. It's like almost like the runway, you know, fashion, ready to wear fashion is kind of just, you know, a nice to have extra thing in terms of money. The leather just is, you know, such a huge category, especially for big bags brands. You mentioned Bottega was showing off their bags. Um, so so that's tough. And, and like you were saying with diversity, it does feel often in this industry, like one step forward, two steps back. Maybe if we're lucky, two steps forward, one step back. Um, I felt the same way in New York Fashion Week about um, diversity and inclusivity on the runway in terms of size. It felt like we forgot about all the progress that had been made. You know, it really feels like sometimes a uh, a positive thing that's good for the world and society and for the industry becomes trendy and people start doing it. And you think that this is a, oh, this is a complete, you know, paradigm shift. And then you realize, oh, it was just in for a season and now they're not doing it anymore. So I, yeah, the the definitely I noticed the presence of leather as well. It was very, very prevalent. Um, and who knows if that, I mean, fur is one thing I think that has like gone out of style and is completely gone. Like I don't see a lot of brands even touching that anymore. Um, but yeah, leather, I think, is going to be much harder to convince people to drop because it makes them a lot of money and it's just much more. I mean, the average person probably didn't wear a ton of fur every day before a lot of brands stopped dropping it. But like you've got leather all around you all the time. It's going to be much harder to uh, divest from that, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think that it was something ridiculous that the biggest margins basically come from leather goods. And that's why, you know, so many people um, end up investing in it. Obviously, you know, on the super high end, there's kind of a second life, third life component um, to leather wear goods that I think makes it a tiny bit better. Um, but I'm worried when it comes to, you know, everyday wear and even ready to wear pieces, just because those tend to influence, you know, what you end up seeing next year the most. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we should call it there. This has been such a great conversation. Like I said, next week on Week in Review, we will be talking about Paris Fashion Week, and that will finish up our Fashion Month coverage. Um, and we'll also obviously have plenty of coverage of uh, Paris Fashion Week on Glossy.co. So check it out there. Um, for those of you listening, if you haven't given us a rating and a review, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, that helps us out a lot. And you should subscribe to the Glossy Podcast too, because you'll hear We Can Review every Friday and every Wednesday. We, either myself or Jill, will interview some cool industry insider person. Um, but until then, thank you for listening. And Sophia, thank you so much for being here and sharing your, your thoughts. <laughs>